0: Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look down to verse 13 this morning. You'll find that on page 859 if you're using a copy of the church Bible, and I know you're going to find it exceedingly helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we look at this together. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down again to verse um, 13 this morning. And as we are looking at this together, let me pray for us as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that you are the one who has breathed out every word in scripture. We thank you that you've given us everything necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us by your own purpose and grace. We pray that grace and mercy would be multiplied to us this morning in the knowledge of Christ, that you would show us what a full and complete and majestic savior we have we pray lord jesus that you would draw near to us that we would hear your voice that we would see your glory that you would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in your face into our hearts that you would shed your love abroad in our hearts that you would remove all fear and doubt and that you would quiet us and strengthen us in the knowledge of who you are as our savior we pray these things in jesus name amen Luke 4 beginning in verse 1 and uh, Luke has just ended as it were the introductory sections of uh, his gospel and giving us everything of the birth narrative and everything about the birth of Jesus and then about the baptism of Jesus and now as he is at the brink of the beginning of Jesus's ministry we read and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the great shortcomings of evangelicalism in the 20th century is that we have a tendency to read the Bible as saying, What is this saying about me, first and foremost? What am I supposed to be doing when I come to this passage of Scripture? That is, that is something that seems to be bound up in the hearts of men and women. What must I do is the first question that we often ask when we come to the Bible. But the great question of Scripture is not first and foremost, what must I do, but what has God done? Who is God? What has he done in Christ? Who is Christ? What has Christ accomplished? Why did the Son of God come into the world? That is the great question that the Bible is seeking to answer, and I think if most of us were honest, we would answer that question by saying, the Son of God came into the world to forgive my sins. And that would be a right answer. Or we might say the Son of God came into the world to, uh, to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Also a correct answer. But the answer that the Bible gives us in 1 John When John is writing to that fledgling church and he is telling them about the purposes of God and bringing them together to love one another under under the redeeming work of Jesus Christ to whom they have been united, in whom they have received eternal life, is that this is the reason for which the Son of God has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. This is the reason for which the Son of God has come into the world to destroy the works the works of the devil and so it's fitting as Luke is unfolding his absolutely certain narrative as he is giving us a a sure word a an orderly account for his friend Theophilus and he is setting out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit all of those things which are right and sure it is fitting then that the very first thing that we see Jesus doing at the outset of his public ministry is not being coronated, is not being led through the streets of Jerusalem with people waving palm branches and crying out Hosanna to the son of David, not extolling him as the people did to his, his earlier uh, ancestor David when he was exalted and began his kingly ministry. But the thing that is fitting is that Jesus would be driven into the wilderness and he would be tempted by the evil one. Now. There are so many ways that we could break this up this morning, and I want to do this for us in what I hope is helpful to you. There are four things we're going to see. First, we're going to consider the combatants in this great battle at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Then we're going to consider the arena, then the weapons, and then the victory. The combatants, the arena, the weapons, and the victory. We'll notice that Luke does something very unusual. If you were writing a biography... Uh, you would never put someone's genealogy three or four chapters in. That would be unthinkable. If you were writing someone's biographical account, you would put their genealogy right at the beginning. You would say, I am writing about so-and-so. They were born at such-and-such a time. They were born in such-and-such a setting to such-and-such a person. Here is their descent. But Luke has saved the genealogy of Jesus for a very specific reason. Now, we saw last week that part of it is telling us who this one is, standing in the waters of the Jordan, being baptized, having the symbolically polluted waters from the people who have gone in there before him, with whom he is counted and numbered among the transgressors, poured over him. This is the second Adam. This is the son of God. And and so that is one of the big reasons why the genealogy finds its place, not at the beginning of Luke's account, but after the baptism, at the baptism, coupled with the voice, God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and, and John the Baptist bearing witness to him and saying, he who's coming after me is greater than I, and, and I'm not worthy to stoop and loosen the strap of his sandal, and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, and I am only baptizing with water, and... And right there, giving us that identity. But it's interesting that Luke has very strategically placed the genealogy of Jesus right where it is in between the baptism and the temptation. Now, if you read Matthew's account, you would find that in a different order. You would find the baptism followed by the wilderness temptation You would find the genealogy at the beginning of the gospel. That would seem to be the right order. But Luke is here strategically placing the genealogy of Jesus in between the baptism and the temptation to teach us a very real lesson about who Jesus is now. Uh, Keep in mind, again, that Matthew's genealogy is different from Luke's. Matthew's genealogy is the genealogy of Joseph. It is the kingly line. It goes down through David and Solomon, to Abraham. And it's teaching us that Jesus is the true king of Israel and that he is the true Israel and that he has a right to the throne by way of adoption into Joseph's family. Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy. It is quite different at points. It also goes through King David, but it comes down and it bypasses Abraham and it goes all the way, notice this in verse 38, Jesus, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. The son of God. Now, Luke is first telling us that the one who's going to be driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil is fully man. He is telling us that this one, though he is divine, is also fully man. He is touched with all the same infirmities we're touched with. He can be tempted. He got weary. He got tired. He got hungry. Remember the account of the woman at the well. He sat down, wearied and thirsty at the well. He slept in the boat. Jesus was touched with all of our infirmities, yet without sin. And I think that Luke is highlighting for us when he tells us that Jesus is in this descent and that he, in a very real sense, descends from Adam by way of Mary and the Holy Spirit. He is telling us that he is fully man. Um, You know, I think that... We sometimes forget um, who Jesus is in the two natures. We, we like to pick or choose. I've had people in this congregation tell me over the years, you know, whenever I've emphasized the humanity of Jesus it almost feels wrong. That's, that's an indicator that we have something wrong. That we so love the deity of Jesus that we forget that he's fully man. And that he was weak and tired. Um, Eric Alexander Speaking about Jesus as a man here in this conflict with the evil one says, it was part of his entering into our nature. He was weary. He knows our frame. Isn't that great when you're weary? Jesus knows your frame. He knew what it was to be worn out. Uh, Alexander says he understands the experience that we are passing through. Precisely at this area where he was peculiarly vulnerable, the devil finds a pressure point. When Satan comes in that first temptation, he says, if you are the son of God, you're hungry. It's been 40 days. You haven't eaten. You're, you're, you're weary from this. Your body is worn. You don't have strength. And, and the devil finds a pressure point on the humanity of Jesus. And he says, if your father really loved you, he would provide food for you. So why don't you just go ahead and turn this stone into bread? Do it for yourself. You deserve that. You deserve to be nourished. You deserve to be cared for. Now, I want to I let that lie for a moment, but I want to say, um, in, a, in some sense, and I actually think Luke has some role in writing the book of Hebrews, everything that you're finding here is carried into that great teaching in Hebrews 4 where it says that we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, who was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin, so that he can have compassion on those who are going astray. The high priest, remember, had to be a man. That was the qualification. You had to be a man, you had to be a sinner, and God had to take you from among other sinners. Jesus is not a sinner, but he had to be taken from among men so that he could have compassion on those who themselves were subject to temptation so he could understand everything that they went through, so he could really and truly sympathize with his people. What does does the temptation account have to say to you, first and foremost, it is there is a Savior who is fully man, who understands everything that we experience. Whenever we say, no one has my experience, we're denying that we believe this. And we say that a lot. Nobody's experienced what I've experienced. Nobody goes through what I'm going through. Jesus went through vastly more than you'll ever go through. He knows all of the onslaughts, the temptations he experienced in the flesh, were greater than any temptation that we've ever experienced because our temptations are often driven by our own desires, James says. And he had no sin driving him to those desires. Everything was working on him from without, but... Be that as it may, and the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is a man. Here is the great battle of the ages. This is Genesis 3.15 come to fruition. Remember, God had said, I am going to send uh, a seed to the woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bruise his heel. Here's the culmination. This is Jesus beginning his ministry. What better way for the Son of God who came into the world to defeat the works of the evil one than to begin his ministry face to face with the seat of the serpent. Here is the long-awaited seat of the woman. He's coming to have his heel bruised. He's coming to crush the head of the evil one. He's coming to set his people free. He's coming to redeem the world to himself, and this is the only way that he can do it. He must be man in order to deliver the one who conquered man. Now, he also had to fill the role of the second Adam, and I think Luke is strategically telling us not just that Jesus' is descent makes him fully man from Mary to Adam. He is telling us that he is the second Adam. He is the, the representative. Adam represented all men. Why is the world the way it is? Why are we the way we are? Why do men die? Why is there so much sorrow and sickness and sadness and turmoil and warfare? Why is the world always seeming to come off its hinges? Why is everything seeming to fall apart in this world? Because Adam disobeyed, and he represented all of us, and he was exiled out of that garden paradise, and everything that God had originally bestowed on man was lost. Paradise was lost, and the story of redemption brings us to the place where there would be a second Adam, a second representative coming to undo what Adam did and to do everything Adam failed to do. Uh, It's very interesting, isn't it, the temptations If you look at the nature of the three temptations here, um, it's the lust of the flesh. Command these stones to be bread. The lust of the eyes. Shows them all the kingdoms of the world. He allures them with what he could have and, and what might be his. And the pride of life. Throw yourself off the temple. Show off. Show yourself to be the son of God. Um. In the garden, remember, and John tells us this, Eve saw that the food was good for, to the eyes, that it was good f- for the flesh, and that it, it was good to make one wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, proud of life. Um, Jesus is coming and he is entering in to, as it were, a second great temptation account. In one sense, exactly like the temptations we experience, In another sense, very unique because this is a unique moment in redemptive history. This is the beginning of the ministry of the second Adam. This is Jesus coming and officially showing this is why I'm here. This is who I'm representing. You know, I've often thought about the parallel between this and Adam. David and Goliath, you know, David represents Israel. Goliath is the representative uh, opponent for the Philistines. Whoever wins for that battle wins for his people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Israel's not fighting the Philistines. David's fighting Goliath, but whoever wins, wins for his people. He is representing the people of God on the battlefield. Goliath is a type of the evil one. David is a type of the son of David here battling off against the evil one. Jesus is in the wilderness alone. Notice the disciples are not with him. We're not with him. He must fight the fight alone. He must do what only he can do as a second Adam. That is vital. If, if your faith is going to have roots, you have to get that. Because if you don't have that, then all of our attempt, attempts to strive will be to no avail. I think of those words of... Martin Luther, we're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. Here's the right man. Here's the second Adam. Uh, John Henry Newman wrote these great words. They're some of my favorite um, in meditating on this. He said, O oh, loving wisdom of our God when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. He is marching out to the battlefield. You know, he's going to the wilderness. He's not going to the garden. He's going to the wilderness to regain the garden. And the only way to do that is to be subject to all of the forces of darkness let loose on him. This is the beginning of the hour of darkness. The rest of Jesus's ministry is going to be a ministry of darkness, of, uh, exercising, as it were, the kingdom of Satan, but he must face off against the evil one himself first. And he must prevail, and he must triumph, and then he must go to the cross, and he must prevail and triumph. And everything he does here prepares him for that, and everything he does there tells us why he was doing this here, and all of our hopes flow from that. Now, Jesus is also, as a combatant, The true Israel, and this is something that hasn't maybe been explored uh, as much as it should be in church history. You know, one of the interesting things is, where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness. Where was Israel? They were in the wilderness. You have the 40-day parallel between Jesus and Moses, and you have the fasting, the parallel between Moses and Jesus, and he is the mediator of the new covenant, and he's coming into the very place where God had brought his people and remember, Israel had been tested in the wilderness. They had been given God's word, and they had failed, and they had failed, and they had failed, and they had failed. And, they had failed. And, and the covenant promises were dependent on Israel succeeding. God said, I'm going to bless the nations in you. And if Israel didn't succeed, curses, covenant curses, that's the threat. And the apostle Paul goes in, and he takes all of the theology of the Old Testament, and he says, Christ was made a curse for us that the blessing of Abraham might be ours by faith in him. And the way he does that is he has to go and he has to do what Israel failed to do in the place where Israel failed to do it. Very interesting. The three portions of scripture that Jesus appeals to. Here in this account are all out of Deuteronomy, which usually if you ask people coming for examination in Presbytery and you realize how little our ministers know the Bible, um, what uh, what what did Jesus do to overcome temptations in the wilderness? I mean, these are like Sunday school classes. It really should like children's Sunday school. And they say, well, he took up the word of God. And then we say, well, where what verses did he cite? And almost nobody knows them. By the way, Satan knows the Bible better than most of us in this passage, and Jesus certainly does. Um, But they're all out of Deuteronomy. God gave those specific words to Israel in the wilderness to fight against the temptations of the evil one, and they failed. And here Jesus is coming, and he passes through the water, and he goes into the wilderness, just like Israel went through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and he takes up the word God gave them, and the son of Abraham comes conquering and to conquer And he comes to regain the blessings that Israel forfeited because they disobeyed. And he comes to take the curses on himself. And he is exiled on the cross and he is raised in resurrection newness in the resurrection so that all those blessings are ours now. That is sort of a survey of the combatants. You have the evil one, and you have the fully human, second, last Adam, true Israel of God, going to regain uh, for us what was lost. Now, the arena, again, we've we've said it's the wilderness, right? Adam was in a garden. And Adam was exiled. He was kicked out of the garden when he sinned. He was he was thrown out the east gate. And the cherubim were placed there and 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 here, the second Adam comes not to a garden. He comes to a wilderness, a place of barrenness, a place of desolation, a place that's symbolic of death and destruction where life isn't. Remember, John the Baptist begins his ministry in the wilderness. Now, the one to whom John pointed goes into that wilderness. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. The Spirit takes him to that place and is saying, this is the place where it must begin. This is the place where redemption must begin. In order for us to understand how our barren lives... Are ever to be made fruitful we must understand why Jesus went into the barrenness of the wilderness and yet there's also an interesting picture here when we consider the arena you know when Israel when they crossed the Jordan remember Jesus is baptized in the Jordan these parallels are not these are not just coincidental these are divinely ordered parallels Israel went through the Jordan and they stepped out onto the promised land. And what's the first thing they do? They go to warfare against the enemies of God. They are to cleanse the temple. They are to take possession of what is God's. They are to remove the pollution. They are to be prophets, priests, and kings, cleansing the dwelling place of God. And so they go to -to hand-to-hand battle against the enemies of God the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Amorites and all those nations and that very sticky thing of harem warfare. What do we do with that? And and, and how do we explain that we worship that God and here is that God? And he's doing what that was pointing to. He is stepping out of the Jordan. He is stepping into enemy-occupied territory. And from this point on in the gospel records, he is casting out demons. He is destroying the works of the devil until all the forces of darkness are let loose on him. And holy war happens to him because of our sin, and he is destroyed at the cross, and our sin is placed on him, and God goes to war, as it were, against his enemies at the cross. Um, I don't think that's reading into this. I think that's the bird's eye view. You know, when I was 24, I, um, I had the privilege of going to the French Alps, and I'll never forget standing on La d'Huez and looking out over three continents of Alps, and my French is horrible, if you know French. It was always too feminine a language, so I'm sorry about that. Um, and, and looking out over uh, the Alps, you realize just how magnificent that is, and you can only see it from standing there. Um, when we were down in the valleys, you can look up, and they seem great and and majestic, but you don't get a sense of how breathtaking it is until you're standing there looking over. We are standing, looking over... Redemptive history and what God is doing and we're seeing the mountain ranges in the temptation account of Jesus We are looking down and we're seeing what the son of God is doing what the second Adam's doing what the last Israel's doing What our representative is doing and how he's going to regain the garden How he's going to turn the wilderness into the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end goal. This is moving to that This is moving to that. That's the only way to understand this. Otherwise, this is all arbitrary Jesus is coming to make all things new. You know, the prophets, when they they spoke about God's blessing in the new covenant, they said that God was going to make streams burst forth in the wilderness. How's that possible? That's the symbolism of what Jesus is doing. By learning obedience by the things that he suffered and being obedient even to the point of death. Now, it's very interesting. In the garden, God says to Adam, he says, my son... You can eat of this tree and only this tree. I'm sorry. I just completely messed up my thought. He said to Adam, you can eat of all the trees except this tree and this tree. And that's the one tree that Adam goes and disobeys the good and gracious and loving God with regard to. And in the wilderness, the Father's essentially saying to the son, my son, there's only one tree you can eat the fruit of. You must be obedient to the point of death, even death on the tree. He is saying, there there are no trees here for you. You are going to the tree, and you're going to eat the bitter fruit of that tree, and you're going to regain paradise, and you're going to give it freely to your people who are trusting in you and united to you. Well, we've considered the combatants. We've considered the arenas. Let me briefly just talk about the weapons again. Jesus has two weapons. He has the weapons of God's word, and he has the weapons of trusting in God's will. What carries Jesus through this is he knows his father's word and he knows his father's will. You know, this is why the baptism is linked to the temptation account. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. At the baptism, the father comes and he says, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Jesus needed that word. He needed that affirmation. He needed to be told he was the, the ever-loved, ever-blessed, ever-God-honoring Son. He needed to be told that his Father was pleased with everything he was doing. That was was to strengthen him for his ministry. The Spirit comes down with the proclamation of that word. And then the Spirit, remember, as if he's Jesus' cartographer and wartime strategist, then takes the Son who has received that word into the wilderness, and the Son hears another voice, the tempter, saying, if you are the Son of God do this. Um, Satan is functionally uh, seeking to accuse the son of God that you are not who your father has said you are. You are not, his word is not true. Remember, Satan does that in the garden. He says in the garden, God knows. God's lied to you. He's told you you're going to die. He knows that when you eat of it, You're not going to die. You're going to be like him. Satan here will reverse it. Satan's strategies are very, very nuanced. He reverses it and he says, your father has said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You're not the son of God. If you are, do this. And Jesus is clinging fast to the word his father has given him. You know, as an aside, this is about you, by the way. When we fail, when we falter, when we cease to be fruitful in the Christian life, it's because we... If you're a true believer, it's because you allow the evil one to say, you're not really a son or a daughter of God. You're not really who God has said you are. You're, you're a hypocrite. You're a phony. You're a fake. How, how could anyone who is the son or the daughter of God do what you do? And you will never be fruitful. And when you say that to others, you paralyze them. And you are just like the evil one saying to, say to Jesus, if you are, if you are. Every temptation, prefacing it, if you are. Jesus has resigned himself to his Father's affirmation. He has resigned himself to do his Father's will. You know, John Calvin has a very interesting thought here because, you know, the Christian church for thousands of years under Roman Catholicism has celebrated Lent. And Calvin, I'm not, I'm not trying to get in an argument if you want to celebrate Lent, but Calvin says, you know, it's very foolish. That's, it's very straightforward. He says, look, the Israelites didn't imitate Moses' 40 days of fasting on the mountain. (laughs) That's a brilliant point. Thank you, John Calvin. They didn't look back and be like, Moses fasted 40 days. We should do. Only Elijah, because they had special tasks. They were types of Christ." But here the father has told the son in some shape or form in order for him to enter in on his public ministry, he must consecrate himself through this long period of fasting and affliction, as it were. So he relies fully on his father, not on created things. And here comes the tempter. If you are the son of God, just turn this stone into bread. God had given bread, hadn't he? to Israel in the wilderness. He had miraculously provided. Very interesting, when Jesus goes and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, the context of that is in the manna coming down from heaven. Jesus is looking back, and he realized that God's purposes for his people was not dependent on them taking matters into their own hands and saying, I am going to trust my father to provide. I am going to trust him to give what he has said, and I don't know where it's coming from. It's going to fall down from heaven like angels' food. And Jesus goes there, To battle Satan saying to him, if you really are, then do this for yourself. You deserve this. You deserve better. Now, Jesus is resigning himself to his father's will, most certainly there and to his word. And then when Satan comes in that second temptation and says, uh, he takes him and shows him, perhaps in a vision, we don't know, but all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and he says all this I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me it's all been delivered to me well the first question is who delivered it to Satan well Adam did our first parent and parents led the rebellion now um, God says through the apostle John the whole world is under the sway of the evil one all the glory and glamour of the nations are under the sway of the evil one now why would that have been a peculiarly real temptation for Jesus? We can understand the bread. 40 days, you're very hungry. Can't even imagine. Just water, no bread. How is it a temptation for Jesus? Now, if, if, if you know, every time we turn on the television, in one sense, Satan is setting the whole world in its glory before us. And, and fame and fortune saying it can be yours. How was how this a temptation for Jesus? Well, Jesus had come into the world to regain the world. You know, the language of you are my son, in you I am well pleased. The father takes that straight out of Psalm 2. Where the father says to the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron. You will break them in pieces like potter's vessels. Now, therefore, be wise, O you kings. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way When his wrath is kindled but a little, Jesus knew that that was about him. He knew that he was the long awaited king. He knew that he was the heir of all things, but he knew that he would get the crown by way of the cross. He knew that he would not get the nations until he went to the cross and took the sins of his people on himself, defeated the evil one, conquered sin, conquered the world and secure that everlasting inheritance. It was a real temptation. And notice that Jesus, again, going to Deuteronomy, says now, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He sees Satan as behind all the idolatry of the world, all of the real idolatry, all of the functional idolatry. He sees him as the great enemy of God in tempting God's people and here tempting the son of God himself to idolatry. By the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, But more than sexual sin, more than murder, more than all the heinous sins that you would categorize if you put down your list of those sins that you think are more destructive than others, God hates idolatry more than all of them. In the Old Testament, the chief sin for which God judged his people was idolatry. And here Jesus is showing us he's come to make us true worshipers of himself and his father and his spirit by himself worshiping his God and trusting him and relying on his word and always doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. Um, Notice the final temptation. Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Um, In a very real sense, Satan's tempting Jesus to a counterfeit version of messianic provision power and pleasure you could say or fame here he's saying you deserve the you deserve the adoration of the people you deserve for people to see who you are throw yourself off the temple satan knows the scriptures those that are trusting in him satan goes right to psalm 91 most of us don't even know that's where that's from and and he says If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off because it is written. Now Satan takes up God's word. Now the combat is fierce. And now the Son of God is standing there and he has to decide how does he battle the evil one when he is preying on the weakness of his flesh, when he's preying on the positions for which he's come into the world, when he is attacking him at those points where he is most vulnerable. And let me say this this morning, whether or not we get into a debate about whether Jesus could have sinned, As a man, because there is a debate in church history over that, and I'm not going to get into that, though I just introduced it to you. (laughs) Um, Of this much, we can be sure he felt the power of the temptations. These were perfectly crafted for the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And notice what Jesus says. Very interesting, too. The prince of the fallen angels cites a verse of scripture about the unfallen angels and how God sends them to help his people. He knows the Bible way better than we do. And yet he leaves off the next verse, which says, you will tread on the viper. Isn't that fascinating? Here is the serpent, head-crushing redeemer, of whom the next verse is speaking. And Satan is manipulating and twisting God's word. And notice Jesus says... You shall not put the Lord your God to the task now. I think Jesus is both speaking of his father and himself. I think he is both at one and the same time saying, you shall not tempt my father who sent me, and you shall not any more tempt me, who is the Lord God Almighty. I think Jesus is doing both of those things. And he realizes the counterfeit because he knows God's word. He realizes what he has to do because he knows and loves God's will. He will not waver because he is holding fast to the word of his father. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he has essentially said, I have come to finish the work that my father has given me, and nothing will stand in my way until it is accomplished. Jesus is functionally saying nothing and no one. The fiercest opponent who he's facing off with here, nothing will stand in my way until it is accomplished. Now, I want us to look at the victory briefly here, but I want to ask this question, because if I look at this, and I know all my failings, and I say, okay, how do I succeed when Satan tempts me, when he tempts me with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, how do I withstand Satan? Let's, let's say that's the question that's, that's ruminating in your mind, you know, give me something for me to take with me, and I haven't given you 37 minutes of something already to take with you, but, but you have said, I'm going to give me something that I can just get the teeth of my brain around for me. The, the question is not first and foremost, how do I learn not to fall into temptation, but what do I do because I have so many times failed? I fell in Adam, and I've failed so many times myself. That's The proper question and the answer is we go to the obedient son. We go to the one who is here keeping God's law, who is obeying the sinless one. We go to him and we say, Lord Jesus, I am full of sin. I need you every hour. I am full of sin. You know, the greatest saints that God has used in church history are the ones that most readily say, I am full of sin. Focus on their own sin. Focus on their own failings. They don't go around looking at the failings of everybody else. They focus on their own sin. They say, I need you, precious Jesus. I am full of sin. My heart is dark and evil. And they realize and and say to him, but I know that you have done everything that I need. I know that you are everything that I need. I know that you have accomplished what I could never do. You know, there's this hymn in our hymnal, and I, I can't stand it. It's about little children being just as holy as Jesus. I don't know if you've ever sung that line. It's... Little children must be obedient and holy as he. It's a Christmas hymn. It's terrible. Little children aren't obedient and holy. That's the point. Yes, he makes us holy by his grace, but there's no way I am not going to be Jesus. He is unique. He is alone in the wilderness. He's alone in the garden. The disciples fall asleep. He goes alone to the cross. He is the captain of our salvation. He is going it alone, as it were. Because only he can. So that we can be confident that we have this victory. And let me say this this morning. As we consider this victory, um, you know, it's a foretaste, isn't it? What we see in the garden, in the wilderness, is just a foretaste of everything that he would go on to do. When he hung on the cross, remember, Satan presumably was there working through the Roman soldiers and the thieves If you are the son of God, get yourself down. If you are, at the end of his ministry, attacking him in the same way, can we make this Jesus waver? Can we make him not fulfill his work? And Jesus roars in victory, it is finished. He cries out in victory, it is finished. He says to his father, I've finished the work that you have given me to do. I've done all those things that my father has given me. And that means our victory is rooted and grounded exclusively in him. And if we're going to be victorious, we are going to follow the captain of our salvation. And we are going to cry out to him when we're tempted. And we're going to realize that he sympathizes with us in all points, because he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. That's the difference, yet without sin. And we're going to realize that we have an advocate with the Father who represents us, and we're going to go through life joyfully, even as we battle our own temptations, even as we're called to take up the whole armor of God and to fight victoriously, even as we labor to know God's word and to utilize it and to take up the sword of the Spirit and to live our lives in light of uh, our dependence on the Holy Spirit. And yet there's something so unique about this victory. You know, theologians in the uh, late 20th century used to talk about D-Day and V-Day and how the one made the way for the other and that that's really what you have here, this military conflict. You have uh, Jesus stepping, as it were, on the shores of Normandy and gaining that decisive victory then going out and doing everything he was commanded to do and everything that was necessary for a redemption and then crying out in victory on the cross and securing the new heavens and the new earth. You know, in the middle of his ministry, in John chapter twelve, Jesus has this uh, this great little um, this great little saying that is, has not received a lot of airtime in the church. He says, uh, "Now is the time when the ruler of this world will be exercised. He says, "Cast out! Now's the time when the ruler of this world will be cast out." He came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says that just as the children partook of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, the devil, and through death release those who all their lifetime were afraid of death and judgment. That's what Jesus is doing. What is he doing in the wilderness? He's destroying the works of the one who holds all of us by nature in fear of death and judgment. And he has essentially said, I have come and I have conquered. Follow me. Trust in me. When you fail, return to me. Rely on me. Be confident that I have done everything necessary. That's, that's the secret to the Christian life. That's the secret to answer the question at the beginning. What is this saying to me? That's what it's saying to you. And so every part of our Christian life must be rooted in that, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us confidence that your Son is who you have said he is. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not waver, um, not one second, not one inch from the mission that your Father gave you. We thank you that you accomplished all things for us. We thank you that all things are fulfilled in you. We pray that we would have the strongest confidence that we are your sons and daughters. We pray for those who may never have trusted in you and who are not yet part of your family, that you would redeem them this morning, that you would show them that you are the sufficient Savior, the great high priest, the last Adam, the true Israel. We pray, our God, that you would give us great joy in the victory that's ours in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.